Star jump sequence terminates, Captain. Get the gravitational dampers online and open the blast shield. Aye, sir. Bring us in closer. Aye, aye, sir. Moving us in on sublight drive. Extreme magnification. Aye, sir. The center of the galaxy. And there's our black hole. The experience of a lifetime, Captain. Let me put this on audio. We should be able to hear the magnetic resonance field. This is it, ladies and gentlemen. The edge of time and space where the impossible can happen. Welcome to the event horizon. Welcome to the event horizon. I'm Gene Turnbow, station manager, and with me is Susan Fox. And we're very happy to have with us as our guest the inim- inimitable, and I see it rented teeth, inimitable. John Scalzi. Welcome to the show. He is inimitable. I've never tried to imitate him. Never will. (laughs) Hello. How are you you today? It is lovely to be here. Thank you. Actually, I'm I'm having a pretty good day. Um, I have uh, very recently, of course, uh, finished the upcoming novel, and I have a uh, novella, which I just finished as well. So for the last uh, couple of weeks, I haven't really had anything to do, which is actually nice. So I'm in my vacation period at the moment. Very soon I have to start another novel, but for now I'm, you know, uh, just taking a breather and relaxing. So lately we've been pounding through the Old Man's War uh, uh, series. We wanted to get up to speed, so I took the first one and she took number four. No, it was, it was, it's more than four. What, what number is it? The, uh, the Human Division. That's number five. That's, five, That's number five. Yeah. Okay. Well, I've I, she just read number five. I read number one. So we mm-hmm. figure between the two of us, we make one good interviewer. <laughs> At least you, you, we're up to speed on it anyway. Between the two of you, you rav, you average out to the last colony, which is number three. Yeah, there we, go. <laughs> there we go. And now I have to go pound through the rest of them because how did we get here? Fortunately, our you know, one of our our website editor uh, Laura brought me up to speed on what this the the CFD was. CDM Laura Davis, our indispensable managing editor. Sorry, right. I, did I did I forget the adjective? Damn it! I hate when that happens. Breakout in verbs. So um and and uh human division had a very interesting uh way of marketing. It, it was like one section or one chapter a month yeah. for however many months it was, 12 months, 10 months. Thir- uh, well, 13? not 12 months, 13 weeks. 13. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, what we did was uh we basically wanted to put something on online and have it be uh something that people could expect every week in their uh uh, email boxes, but one of the things that we didn't want to do is we didn't want to do it like a traditional cliffhanging serial, like tune in next week to find out what happens. What we wanted to do is have each individual story in Human Division kind of be its own thing, so that if you only read uh, episode one or episode six or episode nine, that even if you had no other context, you would be able to just enjoy that for itself. Um, so that was kind of an interesting challenge because. Um, you know, you read book five and, and you had someone who got you up to speed a little bit. But one of the things that we assumed was that people would be jumping into it without any sort of previous knowledge. And so we wanted to make sure that the that they could do that. And also individually, each individual episode had to do the same thing. So there was kind of a very uh, stringent requirement in, in the writing to, you know, make sure that people were clued in enough to enjoy every bit of it while at the same time, um, those people who have uh, been with the with the series since the first book would not feel like yes we know we've got this already we understand move on so uh, that was kind of a from a, a writing point of view that was a real a real challenge for us and uh, uh, and for us I mean me because I was the one who was actually writing it Every, you know everybody else was involved with the marketing and so on but um, but. I, that's kind of the reason, one of the reasons that I wanted to do it, which is, you know, here is a particular writing challenge, which is not often presented. Can you do it? Go. And that's kind of uh, uh, why I was actually really excited about uh, 
about doing it. And and I think we pulled it off. I mean, one of the uh, things that I like to say about um, the Human Division is when we initially released it, like I said, it was one episode a week released electronically. Um, and each of the episodes uh, landed on the uh, USA Today bestseller list. So I have a very, very obscure uh, literary record of 13 different titles, uh, each on the USA Today bestseller list, um, sequentially every week. <laughs> now that's fun. That's, right. That's... It's, it, it's like the, the, the most number of bunts or something like yeah. that. You know, yeah. it's, it's, you know it's, it's one of those ones where I'm like, I'm pretty sure I'll be keeping that particular record for a while. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> now, I noticed, well, when you described the, the work, first of all, you used the word we, and you already defined that as being you being the writer, of course. The editorial right. we. But, the, yeah, the editorial we, and in this case, that actually means your editorial team. Yeah, it absolutely does. One of the things that um, I, I'm very clear about with people, I mean, occasionally I'll get someone who says, I pirated one of your books and uh, I want to pay you. Can I just, you know, send you five bucks? Um, and my answer to that is usually no. And the reason is not because I'm too proud to take the money, um, but because there's actually much more that goes into uh, the construction of the book than just the writer. I mean, I certainly write the story, and without me, the book would not exist. But there's also the editor who edits it. There's the copy editor who, you know, corrects all my grammatical errors, of which there are many. Um, there That's a is... surprise. No, 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 no. To me, it's a uh, surprise. It's, it's, I'm, no. Because I don't, you know, because I don't see all the, the ragged edges and the well, the you know jaggly what? bits on you the You see the finished product. Yeah, I see you the see your product. own, you know, you see your own first drafts. You only see right. his first Right, exactly. Product. Yeah, yeah, so no, trust me. I, yeah, I trust see me only the there. shiny bits. Yeah, no, and that's, uh, that's exactly the intent. That's why you have a copy editor there. So we have the editor, we have the copy editor, we have the, the page designer, we have the graphic artist who does the cover, we have the people in, you know, marketing, we have the people who distribute the thing, we have the booksellers. I mean, it is one of those things that the longer you are involved in publishing books, you realize that there really is an entire team there. Um, and if, only, if you only give money to me, um, then basically what you're saying is that everybody else who contributes to the book, who really does have uh, an important thing to do uh, with the book, that they essentially don't have value. Um, and, and I disagree with that. I mean, I think it's really important that, um, that we do understand that uh, the creation of books um, is, uh, is a team effort. So, I mean, when I do my acknowledgments, I always acknowledge as many of the team uh, who put it together as I can because it actually does uh, make a difference not only to the people who are being acknowledged, because that's always nice, but it also makes a difference to the people who are reading the book who realize when they look at that list of all those people who are involved that, um, that it really is a, a team effort. And in particular, in the case of where we are doing something like releasing 13 episodes, one a week for however long we're doing it. I mean, that didn't just happen because I decided that would be a cool way to do it. I mean, we sat down and we had a actual discussion about it, you know, uh, over a year before the thing actually came out. It was me. It was uh, the publisher of Tor. It was the, pub uh, the president of Macmillan. It was their uh, Macmillan's digital initiatives folks. It was my editor, Patrick. I mean, all of these people came together uh, to say, how are we going to do this? How are we going to execute it? What is our strategy? What do we want this to be? And so, yeah, if, you, if I was just always just talking about me, 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 I'm ignoring uh, so much of what actually goes into the process of what eventually mm -hmm. comes to you as the as the reader. And the process in this case for this uh, uh, the fifth book, um, releasing it a chapter at a time like this. I mean, this is this is an interesting. Well, first of all, it's an interesting approach, but secondly, it's been done. I mean, you're not the first person to do it, but so few have done it. That you're really well, yeah. kind of redefining, uh, redefining a little bit of the art form for writing for writing a book. Well, uh, I think that's correct. I mean, I, one, you are absolutely correct that uh, the idea of serializing, of course, obviously, is not new. I mean, uh, Dickens did it. 
you know, uh, Dovskievsky did it with crime and punishment. One of the things that people, you know, why is crime and punishment so long? It's because Dovskievsky was paid by the chapter and he had gambling debts. He, he was. <laughs> That's a good answer. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah no. And eventually, I did not know that. Yeah, no, if you read it, you go, it goes on and on and on and on. There's great examination of guilt and everything else. And then finally, uh, somebody said to him, uh, it's time to wrap it up. And that's why you have the last two chapters, which were, and suddenly there was this happy ending, you know, as much as any ending could be happy in Siberia. Um, <laughs> yeah. But um, so, but yeah, I mean, the, the thing about it is, is that we are in a really interesting age in publishing where... Uh, we don't have to necessarily do things the way that they've always been done for the last 25, 30 years. And here was an opportunity to say, let's do this. Let's take this story, put it out over 13 weeks, have each chunk be its own thing, uh, see how people respond to it. If they respond positively, um, then that's something that we can put in our toolbox, not just me as the writer, but Tor and Macmillan as publishers. Um, as a legitimate uh, way of distributing uh, writing. And uh, we're in a just very exciting age uh, in terms of publishing. Exciting in all meanings of the term, you know, not just panic-inducing, we're running with our heads on fire, <laughs> what the hell are we doing, mm -hmm. um, but also um, that they are willing, publishers are willing to take chances. They are willing to do things that maybe they maybe they work, maybe they don't, but even if they fail, that's data that you can use for the future. And one of the things that we absolutely knew going in to, to writing this thing is that it could absolutely fail, that we could have timed the market too early or too late, that people wouldn't want to do, uh, to do the episodic thing, um, or that you know they weren't interested in another old man's war book, whatever it was, that it could have failed. Okay, seriously, no, yes. no, 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 it's John Scalzi. John, no, by well, God, we uh, John freaking Scalzi. It's going to fail. 20, the the twenty thirteen <laughs> Hugo winner for best novel was going and to the fail. president I of the SFWA. So. It would have to be really bad. Well. Yeah. well, that believe me, that could have possibly been <laughs> something that happened. No, I mean. To be clear, I mean, uh, having me involved and also specifically having Old Man's War series involved was a hedge against complete and total failure. So, yes, that is, that is an aspect of it. <laughs> but, but one of the things that we do have to acknowledge is um, that, for one thing, every series has its natural rise and fall, mm -hmm. right? Oh, uh, yes. One other thing that we have to acknowledge also is – if people didn't get behind the particular method of distribution of this, um, then even with my name and even with the series, um, that could have been a problem. Now, one of the things that I was absolutely clear with Tori McMillan when we did this was I'm willing to do this. I'm willing to put what is basically my bread and butter you know, marquee series to service for this. But you guys got to hold out your end as well because if you half-ass this – um, then it's me who gets damaged by well, it. Well, and they're actually they're you both you and them are screwed. Right. You exactly. Know, well, I mean, if it if it really tanks after three or four episodes, they could just stop doing it unless there's well, a contract. Well, and the way you wrote it, you know, you basically you've got explosive bolts at the end of each chapter. Right. And so <laughs> these are yeah. And so these are. I mean, there was as much as we did. Obviously, as much as we could mitigate risk in the way mm -hmm. that we presented it, but the, the risk was still there. But again, one of the things that we, we built into the assumption was this may succeed, this may fail, this may be somewhere in the middle. But no matter what, uh, we are recording it, we are uh, looking at it, we are making sure we understand the dynamic of what's happening mm -hmm. for – the future and for uh, to understand where we go with this next. So in some sense, um, it was freeing for me to know that even if it failed um, in whatever value of failure you want to put it, um, that uh, that was part of the expectation of let's throw it against the wall and see if it sticks. So uh, that was kind of freeing. But at the same time, you know, I didn't want it to fail. <laughs> no, of course not. Of course not. <laughs> But of course, I I, you know, I just looked up the the price break and um, okay, so thirteen episodes at ninety nine cents each, versus right. if you actually if someone possessing some modicum of 
like ability to delay gratification could get the whole book for under eight dollars when it's done. Well, they well they can do that. They can do that now because it just came out in paperback two weeks ago. Before yeah. the price was uh, closer, I think it was eleven ninety nine. So the price differential was not that that. So it's, uh, it's out in paperback now. It's in Kermit paper. Arms, yay! Yay! Yes. <laughs> so um, the challenge of writing something in an episodic way like that. Uh, uh, there must have been a temptation to fall back on the uh, the melodrama formula. It wasn't though. The tone was up. It was down. There were, there was horror. There was comedy. There was you know all all kinds of different stories. It, you really didn't know what you were going to get with the next one. Right, and that was that was of course uh, by intent as well. There were basically three. Um, there were th- actually yes three uh, different sort of tracks that were running through it. We had the uh, novella in the front, which was the B team. And that had to be basically our uh, big entrance, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it was double-sized in terms of where, uh, how big the episodes generally were. Then there was the basic, what, what I would call the um, uh, narrative arc track, where we followed um, Harry Wilson and his diplomatic team. And those were uh, chapters that were about 10,000 words long. Um, and then we had what I called the single-serving ones that got to follow some mm-hmm. some of the folks who were uh, minor characters in the larger telling. But uh, by following them, you got a little more exploration of the universe, uh, and those tended to be about six or seven thousand words. And so we mixed the we mixed those up. We alternated them. Um, and the the metaphor that I I gave people to explain it. Um, was like the X-Files. There was the episodes that were part of the X-Files mythology with Mulder's sister being abducted by aliens and blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. Um, And then there were the single episodes where they went and they uh, dealt with the monster of the week. And you had them sort of alternating uh, back and forth for those uh, in order to keep up the interest of the people who were watching, uh, but at the same time, you know, uh, create a larger X-Files universe. To the same extent... Um, being able to, you know, have those ones that that followed the the main characters uh, created a, an actual uh, spine to the uh, entire entire narrative, which was important when we finally were going to compile it into a book. But being able to take all those side trips was really useful because it allowed me to explore the old man's war universe in a way that I was never able to do before, specifically because I was always tied to a single narrative. So in a way, it was sort of a sightseeing tour. Oh, it was absolutely that. And it was great because I wanted, I wanted to go sightseeing. I mean, I had built up this universe in my head um, that I hadn't been able to, a lot of the times, be able to share because there was no way to do it uh, in one of the earlier novels without dragging the story away and just basically, mm-hmm. um, you know, mechanically disabling the, the, uh, the narrative. Um, and so now I was finally able to do, to do that in a way that made sense in the, in the model that we had created. Uh, and that was a ton of fun for me. Well, that's, that's pretty neat stuff. I mean, it, it mm-hmm. sounds like a real, it sounds, it sounds like it was just a hoot to write. I'm just a, a, a sort of a vacation in a way, a, a holiday. Oh, I'm, I'm glad you, I'm glad it sounds like that. <laughs> it's like uh, the, the, so you've uh, got you've got another one coming out uh well in terms of the old man's war universe yes yes, yes. We, we will be doing another uh book and that will follow uh the immediate events of uh the human division human division has, has yeah well, i sure hope so because he kind of left us in a place of what happens next you're not yes. stopping has now the ti- has the title yes. been announced yet uh, no, uh, the way I've been uh, referring it to is the human division to the division in, 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 in. <laughs> <laughs> electric boogaloo. Yes, yeah. exactly. The quickening. <laughs> uh, but, uh, yeah, I, that's actually the thing that I will start writing after, uh, probably, uh, in the next few weeks, because then it will come out for 2015. I'm really looking forward to it. I'm, and I'm, now that I'm hooked on the old old man's universe, I'm going to have to go back and reread all of those books. Yes, yes, you uh, are. Yes. Well, that's that's the thing with this job. We're reading like the firsts of a series or the lasts of a series, and then we have like a pile of books to buy. 
pound through series. Is, is, yeah, yeah, you've got to read the stuff in the line of work, and then you end up getting hooked on the thing, and it's yeah, five yeah, times yeah. the amount of reading you thought you were going to do. Your life is hard. Oh, well, this and gosh. our day jobs, okay? <laughs> it's my day job. Yeah, uh, Susan, uh, Susan deals with uh, uh, entertainment industry publicists all day long. Right. So, so you've been uh, you've got a lot of stuff coming up for the rest of this year as well. It's uh, you've been a very busy busy man. Uh, yes. Not resting on his laurels. Well, if I rest on my laurels, my mortgage fails. So, mm-hmm. yeah. And so uh, besides, as as who wants who wants crushed laurels? Right. Exactly. Um, <laughs> so actually, this year, actually, in a couple of months. Uh, the video game that I've been working on, uh, Midnight Star, should be coming mm-hmm. out. Um, and with that, actually, is a graphic novel that accompanies it. Is there an, is that an MMO or a, a, a single player? Or it's a first-person tell- shooter. First-person shooter, okay. It's a first-person shooter that was designed specifically for uh, mobile, uh, ta- uh, like tablets and, and things mm-hmm. like that. So That's that, unusual. Yeah. Well, yeah, and that's one of the reasons to do it is because there have mm-hmm. been games that have been... Uh, shooters that have been ported into um, tablet, mm-hmm. um, but uh, the idea of building one native to the form and taking advantage of mm-hmm. the things that you can get uh, with uh, tablets and touchscreens and stuff like that when we started doing it was uh, was still a pretty new thing. And so that was kind of exciting. The people who are uh, in Industrial Toys, which is the, the group that is uh, mm-hmm. putting it together, uh, includes Alex Seropian, who is a former... Uh, he's the founder, uh, co-founder of Bungie, and he was uh, one of the masterminds behind Halo. So when he mm-hmm. came to me and said, hey, I'm thinking of doing a first-person shooter, do you think you might want to write the story for that? I'm like, you know what? I think you might be someone that I can work with. And there's a graphic <laughs> novel that goes with that as well, Midnight Rises. Uh, yes, that is, that is correct, because um, we wanted to have something that uh, was able to help set the uh, set the scene for the for the story, but not only that, but we also just like we wanted to write uh, a video game or put together a video game that played to the strengths of of the the tablet. Uh, same with the, the graphic novel, we're able to do things uh, that we that most people don't already do uh, when it comes with graphic novels, including um, and this is kind of a fun innovation. Uh, to some extent, the decisions you make. You can make decisions while reading the graphic novel, and the decisions that you make while reading the graphic novel can have an influence on the video game once you start playing it, which is to say that the graphic novel and the video game talk to each other. And likewise, if you play the video game, um, there's back and forth uh, between what's going on with the, the graphic novel and the, and the game itself. And that is kind of really cool uh, to be able to say that one's not in service to the other. Either, both of them are independent um, events that if you read them in isolation, you, you'll definitely uh, enjoy them. Or if you play only the video game, you'll still definitely enjoy it. But if you put the two together, you get kind of a synergistic effect. Boy, every teenager in the country is going to need this. Oh, yeah. Yes, indeed. So I you're agree not, with that 100%. You're not just, uh, you're, although you write novels, you're not just a novelist at this point. Now you're working in transmedia, you know the 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 buzzword of uh, uh, the last couple of years, uh-huh. uh, and you're it's you're taking a step away from the from uh, the strictures of one specific medium, and you're writing across them. And how does this how does this affect your creative process? What 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 did you have to adjust to in order to do this? Well, I mean, you have to understand what the nature of the medium is, and you. Uh, create the story uh, to serve that particular medium rather than trying to shoehorn a, an already established story that you have uh, into that, that particular medium. I don't know. I mean, I mean for me, it's not uh, – I mean, it, being a storyteller is being a storyteller. Um, being able to tell a story across different types of media um, is kind of a fun thing to do. It really does – mean that your brain has to be active. It really means that you have to be paying attention uh, to the format. Um, if you come in with sort of the arrogant assumption that something that 
the the narrative structures and uh, traditions of novel writing are going to directly uh, translate to video games or directly translate to TV or directly translate to whatever, um, then you are going to A, uh, be disappointed and B, you're probably going to put out a less than spectacular uh, piece of, uh, of work. Um, so for me, just being able to switch between the mediums is, is kind of fun. But the other thing is, is even though each of them has their own challenges, there are transferable skills. And everything kind of goes into the writer's toolbox. Um, so the things that I learned developing the video game with the folks at Industrial Toys or developing the, the graphic novel um, certainly help later when I'm going to you know write novels. Um, so all of it kind of works uh, in that sort of way. And then on a, frankly, just a more practical sense, um, you know, as a person who, who makes his living off of his writing, I'm a big believer in multiple income streams. So that if for some reason, you know, you've, you've been very kind and going, it's John freaking Scalzi. But the fact is, <laughs> you know, there is an arc to everyone's mm -hmm. uh, career. And, uh, you know, maybe one day my novels don't sell as well as they do now, in which case I need to be uh, it will be nice to have other marketable skills. Um, you know, I have opportunities today that um, I may not have later, or those opportunities that I take advantage of today will open up uh, different doors that I will be able to 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 walk through. So, so it's about adaptability. I mean, it is adapting like a cockroach, right? Yes, it, that's exactly correct. <laughs> Rochi the uh, Riveter. Right. There's a story there. Yes, there is. Absolutely. But to, to finish up the thought um, there, absolutely, you have to be uh, you have to be adaptable. You have to be uh, ready to take advantage of the opportunities that uh, show up when they show up. And if you are if you are the sort of writer who says, I am only a novelist or I'm only X or I'm only Y, then you better be really, really good at it. And you better really believe that that format is always going to be around. So. So you've worked with other people's, uh, you've other, worked with other people's intellectual property as well. I mean, this is, uh, uh, I have read here that you, uh, you worked on Fuzzy Nation. And there was a whole, there's a whole uh, history about that and how, and people's general reaction to it when you did it. Sure, sure. Um, the, the story with that was basically... Uh, I had a little bit of downtime, and I'd always had the thought in my head that it would be kind of fun to take uh, a golden age of science fiction story um, and see what would happen mm -hmm. if I rewrote it with contemporary uh, sort of sensibility. Because to be clear, the golden age of science fiction stories are all generally pretty awesome and fun to read and so on and so forth, but it's also become clear, especially – very recently, um, the further we get away from that particular golden age of, of uh, uh, science fiction, that those futures don't necessarily hold anymore. Because even though uh, science fiction writers write about the future, their audiences are in the present. So, mm -hmm. you, so you take H. Beam Piper and Little Fuzzy, which is a fantastic story. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, But what... Yeah, and it was nominated for a Hugo, and it was—it's just a great story. But it's also very clear that it was written by somebody who lived in the late '50s, early '60s, and had the expectations of someone who lived in that time, just in terms of how the characters uh, reacted to each other, the roles of, of uh, women in that particular mm -hmm. story. You know, it's cocktail hour. We're all right. we all have, and, you know, and all, I. I was born in the mid fifties myself, so I have enough. You didn't have cultural... cocktails then. Though. Well, no, but <laughs> no, but I have enough. I have enough cultural. Uh, I have enough of the cultural background of what it was like in the nineteen fifties and sixties to understand where he was coming from. So I sure. was comfortable in that headspace. Yeah, Whereas but you're a not. But the twenty-year-olds are. Yeah, the twenty-year-olds may not be. Right, and that was the thing, which is what. The, the thing that we get is further and further we get away from the golden age of, of science fiction. Basically, the more when we hand someone a book by Piper or, or by uh, Heinlein or by Asimov or whatever, um, we have to say, now remember, this was written in the 50s and so on and so forth. Because there's a lot of stuff you read it and you're just like, yeah, no, it doesn't work like that anymore. Um, so I, uh -huh. I had the idea of 
take one of those stories um, and bring it forward. Now, there's a problem with that. Generally speaking, there's this little thing called copyright. Yeah. And, yes. Uh, yes. And uh, as someone who has several copyrights, I do actually take them seriously. Um, so uh, it was, you know, it would not have done to uh, take Stranger in a Strange Land and, and try to rewrite that. Now, but the thing about Little Fuzzy uh, is that Little Fuzzy is in the public domain. How did that happen? I mean, it's uh, written in the 50s or 60s? It was, it was published in 1961. H.B. Uh, Piper uh, killed himself a couple of years after that. Uh-huh. And uh, quite honestly, basically what happened was it fell through the cracks. And uh, so, you know, the heirs just forgot to renew it because back then you actually had to renew mm-hmm. or it would fall out, fall out of uh, copyright. And so right. they forgot. So basically what had, had happened was I had a gap in my schedule where I wasn't doing anything. Um, I wanted to write a project just for the fun of it because sometimes you want to just write for the fun of it. And I said, all right, I'm going to write this story uh, like, you know, with all the, you know, the covering the same ground with the same basic idea, but I'm going to make the, the characters uh, and the situations a lot more contemporary. Um, and so I did that and I wrote it and I had a blast doing it because it was actually – you know, like I said, it was just kind of a, a fun project, and I literally just did not intend to do anything with it because, even though it was in the public domain, uh, it was something that, you know, I was just like, no, it was for me, and I was going to have fun. Uh, then my editor or my agent gave me a call, uh, and he was mm-hmm. like, "What have you been doing?" Because if I don't get paid, he doesn't get paid. Right. And, and I said to him, "I I've just written something that you will not be able to sell." And he was like, challenge accepted. Send it to me. <laughs> and so I sent it to him. Uh, and he was like, I can totally, I can totally do this. Uh, and basically what we did was uh, the Piper estate is currently owned by Penguin. The, mm-hmm. the, heirs of, the heirs of Piper sold it in 1980 to, to Ace, which is now owned by Penguin. Uh, and so uh, Ethan, who is my agent, basically went to um, – the people at Penguin and said, hey, we did this. And they were like, what? Uh, and so we showed it to them. And our basic way that we, we walked in with it was like, look, we did this. Um, here it is. Read it. Uh, if you hate it, it goes into a drawer and nobody ever sees it because that's fine because that was my expectation anyway. But if mm-hmm. you like it, uh, then we want to publish it. And incidentally, we'll give you a cut. You know, because, <laughs> uh-huh. because even – well, yeah, even though we were not legally obliged to do that uh, because the thing was in the public domain, uh, I felt very strongly that ethically it was the right thing to do um, because, for one thing, it was in the public domain basically because of a, you know, procedural a error. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but the other thing was also um, you do it with an eye toward uh, respecting both uh, the author and the audience. If I came in. Uh, and a lot of old line science fiction uh, folks said, saw me just go, hey, look, here's my version of, of Little Fuzzy. Ha. Um, then they would stab me through the head and they would not be wrong to do so. But if I had the not only the acceptance but the endorsement of the Piper estate, um, mm-hmm. then that, that would cut off a lot of the, uh, the grumping and, and, and complaining. So we went and we did that, and that actually took – much longer than it took me to actually write the thing, but we finally got them to sign off on it, uh, and then and then we published it, and uh, it was it was a lot of fun seeing how people responded. One of the things that I was very clear in the in the book itself, and every time that I talked about it online, was um, this is not a replacement for Little Fuzzy. I hope that you go back and you read the actual Little Fuzzy. Here are links to the Little Fuzzy, you know on. Uh, Gutenberg and you know other places that it was online. Please don't think I'm trying to supplant it. It's just here is a different version uh, tuned for today's sensibility. And in another 50 years, you know, uh, my version will be just as as old and crusty as the original version was, and maybe somebody will do it again. And yet you did the. I think you did the right thing. You went about it the right way. There is such a big difference between what's morally and ethically right. And what you can legally get away with. Oh, sure. And, and one of the things about science fiction fandom, in a general sense, um, is that it is very attuned to uh, what is the correct thing to do as opposed to what is mere, 
nearly the the legal thing to do. Um, and you know, if I had just sort of like, well, legally, I don't need to do it, and screw you all, um, the the result would have been a lot of people very unhappy with me, and I would say with with good cause. By dotting the i's and crossing the t's here. Um, we ended up basically generating a lot of goodwill, and we also did the thing of which I thought was, you know, beneficial as well of basically reintroducing or introducing, I should say, H. B. Piper to an audience who didn't necessarily know that that he existed. I mean, he was a contemporary of Heinlein and Bradbury and Clark and all those folks, but he was not. Um, most of his stuff was not as well known. I mean, Little Fuzzy was his, you know, his one hit, if you want to mm-hmm. put it that way. There are other things that, that he's written that other people like more and so on and so forth, but that was the one that if you remembered him at all, that was the thing that you would remember. Um, so being able to, it's like, it's like when a, a band covers, you know, uh, you know, a song from uh, another band that they liked that from 20 or 30 years ago, and that leads some people back to the original band. Um, same sort of thing. I mean, I know just from looking at the clicks, click-throughs on my website, that tens of thousands of people went from my site to Gutenberg to check it out. So that is, those are 10,000 people or 20,000 people um, being introduced to H. Beam Piper. So there you have it. Now, now it makes me think, what else should be uh, examined? Cat Carter is going to shoot me for saying this, and and please don't shoot me. But the Lensman series. She's our she's our uh, production manager. Kat there Carter. are lots. Yeah, no, there are lots of things that I think would be interesting to sort of revisit. Um, yes, a lot of it probably hits uh, public domain soon. Well, but not. I know necessarily. The, and well, not necessarily, and not necessarily in this country. And right, I don't know what you know. Right, have no, to check that, on that stuff. Our our public domain situation right now, and and not to go all Cory Doctorow on you, but um, but the the fact of the matter is um, that uh, it is currently weighed very very heavily towards uh, creators, uh, which means that like right now, if I write something. Um, I basically the copyright for it goes for the uh, for the length of my life plus uh, an additional ninety years, um, which means that uh, yeah, but nineteen thirties science fiction we're coming up on that. No, not necessarily because it not when the stuff was published, uh, but when the person died. Right. And yeah, like Cordwainer Smith who died young and Marie right. Leinster and then, who died young. And then you add in, and then you add another 90 years to that. So by if you're saying within the next 20 years, then yes that would be correct. Yeah, that's sure. what I'm talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Um and so that would be, you know, that's certainly possible. But the the sort of irony of that is the people who would be likely to sort of reapproach that stuff um will have passed on by then as well. I mean, largely speaking in terms of uh, co- the, the people who fell in love with the Lensman series as uh, part of their original diet of stuff, rather than coming to it sort of backwards through uh, later writers, uh, become smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. So by the time it's in the public domain, there may be people who are just like, uh, okay, we don't know who that stuff is and we don't care because here's this other stuff that we like better. Yeah. Well, I guess that's that's why it's safe to say life plus ninety years. I suppose. Yeah, I don't. I don't know. My feeling about it is, uh, if if I were if I were king of copyright, uh, my feeling is uh, that life plus about twenty five would be fine because that is your lifetime. It takes care of you during the course of your life. Plus, uh, it takes care of your wife and your kids through college, and then after that, you know what? Your grandkids can get a job. Yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. But it's and it's also the fact that um, copyright exists for two reasons. I mean, the first thing is to allow people to benefit from the things that they create, which is great. But the flip side of that is that sooner or later, everything that is created is meant to be put out there for the public to use and and do stuff with. And the longer that we string that stuff out, I mean, I'm going to be dead, and I will be dead for basically twice as long as I've been alive before my stuff gets out of uh, public domain, right? Mm-hmm. I, I expect that, you know, my life expectancy is going to be about 80 years. Then there will be another 90 years after that. That is 170 years 
uh, well, not 170 years, but it'll be like 140, 150 years mm-hmm. of before the earliest stuff I created is out there in, in the public domain. And that's just kind of ridiculous. I mean, I won't care. I'll be dead. My wife, you know, hopefully will outlive me, but she's not going to outlive me by 120 years. And right? neither will and, your children. And neither will my children and, they you know, might. my grand my grandchildren, you know, I hope they do well. My great-grandchildren, who are you people get a job? <laughs> they will, yeah. they I, will have their blood replaced and they'll go to war on another planet. Right, exactly. So ultimately, I just think, you know, uh, there needs to be – it would be nice if there were an examination of, of what is actually uh, a reasonable amount of time uh, for people to have copyright. And while you have copyright, you should not definitely be able to uh, enforce it and defend it and everything else. But eventually, it just becomes ridiculous. So I'm sorry. Now I'm yeah, That's okay. <laughs> There's so much that has changed in the last, uh, in the last 25 years about being a writer and being a creator of, of works of fiction. And one of those is that you are much, much more in the public eye and you're able to respond to your public in ways that were simply impossible 20 years ago. Uh, and your fan mail comes in, in the email rather than you know a kid having to write a letter by post and maybe getting a response back. Right, whereas now people can reach me by email or Twitter or Facebook or, or you know go post, to my website. Post on your blog. and Yeah, exactly. And they, they may not always have complimentary things to say. Yeah. And it's, I've read some of this stuff, and you have to wonder, I don't know. I, some these... people's children, who taught yeah. them to talk like that to people? I tell you. <laughs> Such language I've never seen in all my days. The, the trouble is, of course, we've seen that language everywhere. Wow. And you, have, you've, you're, you're, you have a reputation for dealing with these people in a very, very useful way. <laughs> well, you know, the, the, the way that I feel about it, I mean, two things. One, um, you have to recognize that people are going to think what they're going to think. And if you actually sure. get too worked up about it, you know, you're going to, you're just going to make yourself miserable. It helps that before I was a, a writer, before I was a novelist, I was a movie critic for a number of years. So I wrote ah, lots and yes. lots and movie lots. Critics. Yes. Lots and lots and lots and lots of reviews. Um, and so I know how this, the critical sausage gets made and, and you, and I recognize that not everybody is going to like everything. Yeah, and the people are, are critics charge down the hill after the battle is lost to stab the dying. Yeah. <laughs> but the, I think that there is a role for, for critics. Um, but, but the, the simple fact of the matter is having had that experience, uh, basically made it a lot easier for me to accept the bad reviews when they came in. Mm-hmm. The other thing is, is that, you know, you recognize, I mean, think of right now, I want the two of you to think of your favorite, uh, author or musician or filmmaker or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. Now think of the one thing that they did that you're like, ah, oh, I, you know, that piece i don't know it's just you know it's just kind of terrible and i don't know what they were thinking they must have been drunk or they needed the money or whatever we all have an off day we all have an off day exactly there's always going to be something that no matter even you know it's like john lennon who i think is a fabulous songwriter he's got entire albums i'm like i never need to listen to that album again right uh yeah and you know same with but you're not gonna call him names and say he's an ask because you know you're not you're not if he was on email he'd probably answer it but that damn you john Lennon! what were you thinking when you wrote that song no uh but you know but the thing is is that also generally speaking um you have to accept that people are going to do that now that said uh if they come to your website and they uh are basically abusive and rude and everything else like that you're like no you don't actually get to do that i mean i i have i moderate my my website uh actually very assiduously i'm perfectly happy to have people have criticisms i'm perfectly happy to have them say i really didn't like that particular work but if they are like you blankety blank how could you blank i hope you blank and blank with the blank and then the blank happens and then your guts go blank you know and i'm just like you know what and, and I, I pull out what I call the mallet of loving correction. <laughs> and I mallet the comment, which is I uh-huh. basically delete it. And I like delete it because this guy is a jerk uh, and all that sort of stuff. The thing that people don't realize 
uh, a lot of times, and which I'm really trying to promote to people, is that um, the online world gives people the opportunity to say terrible, terrible things about you, but it also gives you the ability, unparalleled, uh, to completely ignore them as well. There are some people who will come to my website and, and try to troll me, and I will delete their messages, and eventually I'll just block them, and they won't be able to comment on the website anymore. Then they'll move to Twitter, and then I'll block them there. You know, So basically, mm-hmm. um, the amount that they're able to, to bug me is defined by my willingness to put up with their nonsense. Now, there's, I a don't... Flip, there's a flip side as well, and that is that you can feed off the synergy of the fans uh, and, and, and the people who appreciate your work uh, and have other ways of looking at it. Yeah, I suppose that's true. One does want to be very careful about that as well because, I mean, what I was about to say was you have to be careful that you don't create basically an echo chamber where everybody is saying that you're wonderful, you're wonderful, you're wonderful, and you become you, – you do the uh, online equivalent of believing your own press releases. Mm-hmm. You do have to – um, to recognize that uh, that that there that is an attractive nuisance, um, and that you you might end up uh, not as well off in terms of how you perceive the world if you just cut off everybody who thinks poorly of you. What the the goal here for me at least is not to remove any hint of criticism from my online world. The point is to take the people who are permanently 12 years old mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, put them in their own playpen far away from me. I'm perfectly happy to have people say terrible things about me. I just don't need to see them all the time. What about um, – and, and that was that – At was least they actually, don't come to your house. Yeah, they don't come to your house. Well, <laughs> I would I, – I have a shotgun waiting for them if they do. <laughs> Good. And this is this is where that I we mentioned earlier in the show, uh, Rochi the Riveter. Somebody had made a comment about uh, uh, issues that they'd had with uh, you letting people into the SFWA uh, that weren't up to snuff, as though that was actually necessarily your judgment call. While well, you were. It, yeah, no, there the. That was kind of amusing simply because the, you know, the acceptance requirements for CIFA were the same as they had always been while I was president, which was basically you write a novel, you write three short stories, uh, you sold them to approved markets of ours, come on in. Now, what I certainly did do uh, as president was to stump for uh, CIFA as being an organization that people should join because they should join CIFA. CIFA is an organization that is designed to be a place for writers to share information, be a place for writers uh, to uh, to help them defend their rights, to uh, help them when they're in trouble, to be uh, a community for them. And why wouldn't you want to be part of that? Um, so if I'm, you know, if people want to accuse me of using my my position as president to increase the number of people who came into Zifwa, I'm I am happily guilty. Throw the book at um, now. But what they didn't like uh, some of these folks, I, I, I suspect, was that uh, it's a generational thing. The people who are coming into Zifwa are. Younger, they have a different point of view. They look at things differently, and uh, every generation is slightly different than the generation before it and will be slightly different than the generation after it. Uh, And for some folks, not all of them, to be clear, the vast majority of CIFWA members uh, live harmoniously with each other because why wouldn't they? They're reasonable human beings. Uh, But there are always people uh, who are excitable. Mm -hmm. And, And when you get excitable, you know, People get cranky. Let's talk about. Let's take a, a sharp left turn here. Let's talk about red shirts. Okay. We loved it. Uh, well, thank you. I'm glad you liked it. And uh, I, apparently, apparently, lots of people liked it. So I'm I'm happy about that too. Yeah. Red shirts, the TV series, which is a yes. new new idea. Yes. Yes. Uh, which I think is hysterical because it's a. It just adds another layer of meta to the whole proceeding, doesn't it? It does. It kind of does. Yeah, yeah. Um, this has and... the potential of being a, a cult classic with the fans uh, like Galaxy Quest or really tanking. So no middle ground. 
Yeah, no, and and believe me, we're very aware of that. But um, but you know, that's again. I mean, if you're not willing to sort of take a flyer on it, uh, you know, then what are you doing anyway? It, it's not a property that you can totally be a hundred percent playing safe with. Otherwise, it wouldn't have been written in the first place. True yeah. that. Yeah, but um, no, I mean, uh, it'd be funnier if you out, sent it to if you sold it to Paramount. Yeah. <laughs> Well, that oddly enough, my my old man's war movie deal uh, was was with Paramount, so you know they they had to have known that known that I was. Uh, so they've they've optioned that, and they're in pre production on it. Uh, I'm not sure that they're to that point yet. Yeah, they're definitely not in pre production for that at the moment. But they've optioned so. it. Options. It, you can put your optioned. kids through college. Okay. You know, Brad, Ray Bradbury put three daughters through college on mere options for for uh, <laughs> Motion Chronicles. So he's a sure. good shape. Yeah, no, I'm not. I'm not going to complain about uh, my option situation. Mm-hmm. But with regard to red shirts, um, you know, there was interest in it both as a TV series and as a movie after it came out. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that you have to do when you are uh, basically doing this stuff is you have to be willing to wait for the right people and the right situation and stuff like that. Because as the writer of a, of a property. Um, Basically, the only power you have is the power to say no. Mm-hmm. Pretty much. Yeah, because basically when you say yes, it gets taken away from you and off it goes. Uh, now, in the case of red shirts, um, we, again, you know, we waited until we had the, the right people uh, who had the right idea. We knew that we could work with them. And also, I'm a consultant and, a, and an executive producer on the series, so mm. I will definitely be having input as well. So if it fails, then it's as much my fault as anybody else's. Now, who, who's, uh, uh, who are you? Who else is connected? Who's, yeah, who project? else is connected to this? Who's, who's working at, with you? Uh, to... At the moment, uh, the producers are uh, John Shestak and Ken Quapis. Ken Quapis is... Um, probably best known for, at the moment, for uh, his work on the office, including directing the mm-hmm. the finale of that, and that was actually something that uh, appealed to me because a I knew that he understood the kind of uh, humor where I was going from mm-hmm. uh, on that, and also um, I know that he knows how to do uh, humor on television, which is actually hugely important. Yeah, yeah. So uh, those are the two people right now. We've. We signed the. I mean, we announced the deal. I guess about a month ago, um, and at this point, they're looking at writers and showrunners and everything else like that. So, uh, it's it's still very early days. So there's no. It's at this point they don't even know if it's going to be picked up, but it, they're putting it all together to to uh, to get it to a point where it could be. Oh yeah, I mean, we know. I mean, it is at FX. Um, mm-hmm. and, and they definitely have a, have an interest in that, but you know, you can't say, yes, it's a done deal because we could put together a script and do a pilot and it would be terrible. And they're like, no, no, but or it could you. be, it could be an amazing pilot and they could say, oh, yeah, but, but like James it. Cameron wants to do Avatar, the TV series and we need that slot. And right. Well, know, yeah, this just goes on the shelf for 10 years. Yeah, no, there's lots of things that could go yeah. wrong, and and uh, you don't worry about that too much. What you worry about are the things that you have the control that you have control mm-hmm. over. Sure. So, and for me, you know, uh, I mean, I've written the book. The book is done. You know, uh, the stuff that happens from there is always basically just a bonus. If it works out and the TV series comes out and people love the TV series, and that's going to be great for me because. Then the book uh, will sell well, and you know, and uh, I'll be able to buy my child a horse, and yeah. you know, I can get a hot tub full of money, whatever. Yeah. Uh, and if, hot tub and full if it, of money, I like that part. Mm. Hot tub full of money, and if it doesn't work, uh, then I am no worse off than I am right now. And right now, things are good. So not so that bad. That is good yeah. to hear. Yes, you have, I agree. Your, your daughter is uh, uh, about fifteen now, isn't she? Oh, Athena. Yes. Athena. And and does what does she think of her father? What does she are think you of cool this whole science fiction business? Just oh, are no, you a cool, dad? I'm well. No, I'm I'm her dad. There's not any. There's not any. Uh, you know, hope that I'm going to be cool, uh, <laughs> which is perfectly uh-huh. which is perfectly fine. The way that I always figured it is that from the age of about two until about 
11 or 12. I'd be the coolest dad in the world because I know a lot of stuff. I do a lot of cool things. I'm always home. So, you know, all that sort of stuff. And after about 11 to about, let's say, 22, I'm the most embarrassing dad that ever did live. <laughs> and uh, and that's and I'm going to be perfectly fine with that. Uh, but my kid, I think my kid likes me, mm-hmm. which is really the most mm-hmm. important thing. Yeah. I'm not really worried about whether or not she thinks I'm cool. I mean, I'm a science fiction writer and I'm a nerd. Okay, being cool is not something that uh, I, I really spent a whole lot of time uh, being concerned about. My wife is cool. My wife mm-hmm. is the coolest person you'll ever meet. She has all the cool in the family. I have absolutely no cool because cool is about like being reined in and mm-hmm. and having that air of mysteriousness and all that sort of stuff and that's just so not me if i were if i were personified as an animal i would be uh, a <laughs> monkey dog right a, a monkey dog would be like oh, hi how you doing look i have thumbs you know and i'm i'm not exactly what you would just call a man with a lot of reserve so the the cool thing is just not going to happen gene's falling uh, down because he's got a son that age and yeah, yeah my he, son is 15 he knows exactly what you're talking about right exactly and there's and and you have to just accept that that's part of it now like i said yeah you know, my kid seems to like me and I really like my kid. I'm really happy that I have the kid that I have. Uh, and so, you know, and we have a good, we have a good relationship. There's not, it's not full of, you know, horrible awkwardness where we never speak and all that sort of stuff. Um, so, uh, as far as it goes and as much as, as I know that my kid appreciates me and what I do, because she's also, she is proud of me. I know that because she's told me that you know, proud of what I do, proud of, you know, who I am and all that sort of Mm -hmm. stuff. Um, But cool might be asking too much. It's like getting the A and complaining that you didn't get the A plus. Yeah. Well, and and you're having a daughter and and obviously you're, you know, you have a dog in your life from from what I've read. Daisy. About dogs. (laughs) But dogs appear, you know, a a running theme, I guess. Mm Mm-hmm. Because well, there's you know, the dog in the fuzzy book, and there's a dog in the old man's uh, war books. And... Yes, and the in the future, dogs will continue to exist. So yay, yeah, hurry for dogs. Yeah, I I, I so personally you... am, I'm personally more of a cat person, but I like my dog. So and everybody does seem to like dogs. People come to me from uh, saying about Fuzzy Nation. You know my favorite character? I was like, yeah, it's Carl the dog. They're like, how did you know? It's like <laughs> he's everybody's favorite character. <laughs> That's what separates it from from the Honor Harrington books. One's cats, one's dogs. <laughs> I suppose that's true. Although I will say, with the with the Fuzzy Nation uh, book, the fuzzies themselves are distinctly patterned after my own cats. Like Papa yeah. Fuzzy is the our big sort of Maine Coon looking cat that is called lopsided cat. Um, Mama Fuzzy is very and Baby Fuzzy particularly are are patterned after uh, my cat Fluffy, who is total princess cat. Mm. And, and then uh, Pinto is definitely Zeus, my uh, tuxedo cat. So if you look at the, the fuzzies in that book, you are looking at my cats. Good to know. If you, mm. uh, if you had something to say to listeners all over the world, and, mm-hmm. and, and we, as it happens, we are know. actually heard all over the world, uh, do you have any words uh, that you could give the, the, uh, the hopeful writers that might be uh, listening i think the uh, the thing to say is the thing i tell every writer where they're like how do i become a writer it's like you keep writing and it and it's sort of like well yeah but it's like no i say it's not well yeah because there's a lot of people who say i want to be a writer it's like okay are you writing and they're like well i want to write but i'm so busy doing blah 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 blah, blah. And then no you don't actually want to write what you want to do is having you want to have written you want to be able to call yourself a writer, but you don't want to put your, your butt in the chair and you actually want to write. If you want to write, then you have to write. And you have to accept that when you start and for many, not necessarily for many years, but for a long time, what you're writing is not necessarily going to be good. But you have to keep working at it until it, until it gets good. And it's frustrating to have that interim period where you know that what you want your writing to be and what your writing is are not matched up and that 
the reality of it does not match in your head. But the only way you're going to get better is to just keep plugging and plugging and plugging. And the way that I also say it to people is that this is actually, in many ways, the best time for a writer because you can do whatever you want and not worry about, uh, you know, whether or not it's going to be good or bad. You just worry about, you know, let's try it and see what I think about it and what I can learn from it. Um, so for the writers, I'm like, are you writing? If you are not writing on a regular basis, daily is generally ideal, but even if not daily, on a regular basis. Um, if you're not doing that, then what are you doing? Get your ass in a chair and write. John Scalzi, it's been a, it's been fantastic having you on the show. It's really been a treat. Well, thank you. I've, <laughs> I've enjoyed. I've enjoyed it as well. You have just heard episode 53 of Krypton Radio's weekly production of The Event Horizon for March 15th, 2014, with our special guest, science fiction novelist and Hugo Award winner, Mr. John Scalzi. Your hosts have been station manager Gene Turnbow and the station's executive producer, Susan Fox. Krypton Radio is giving away two copies of John Scalzi's The Human Division, courtesy of Tor Books. See our website at kryptonradio.com for details. The episode will air again on Sunday, March 16th, 2014 at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern Time. You will be able to find this episode and others as downloads at the Krypton Radio website and on iTunes and Stitcher as podcasts. The Event Horizon title sequence was written and produced by Gene Turnbow. The part of the science officer was played by science fiction illustrator Mark Schurmeister. The part of the engineer was played by Christian B. McGuire. The Navigator was played by Christine Cherry, and the role of the Captain was voiced by science fiction writer Larry Niven. This program and its contents, except where provided by others, are copyright 2014 by Krypton Media Group Incorporated. Stay tuned for more great music and tonight's episode of X-1. The Event Horizon. It's sci-fi for your Wi-Fi. Hello, this is John Scalzi, the author of Red Shirts. You are listening to Krypton Radio.